0: you join me in prayer? Father, we give you thanks for the great privilege of a new identity in Christ. We pray this morning that you would make that truest version of ourselves uh, shine clearly in our hearts and in our minds that we might live from that place and that truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. I'm going to start this morning with some fill-in-the-blank trivia, so it's for you to finish this sentence. You're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> Jordan, that's very fitting. That. You're not you when you're hungry. That's the tagline of the Snickers commercial. There are these very, a series of them, these very humorous commercials that depict an individual um, who is not acting like themselves because they're hungry. Instead, they're acting like some character played by a famous person. So you have uh, Marsha Brady from the Brady Bunch acting like this axe-wielding madman. Uh, or, or Betty White, who's uh, playing the guy who's falling behind in a pickup game of football. Or one of my favorites was um, Mr. Bean who was playing this kung fu ninja who was kind of struggling as he was hopping from rooftop to rooftop. Or one probably the most people saw during the Super Bowl was uh, the actor William Defoe, who was playing a very cranky Marilyn Monroe. You're not you when you're hungry. So if you're hungry, eat a Snickers and you'll act like yourself again. Well, being ourselves is a value that we hold up. We might say to a child on his first day of school, Honey, just be yourself. Even as adults, we have to remind ourselves when we maybe walk into a new job or certain social situations, not to get nervous, but just to be ourselves. It's a good thing not to act like somebody that we're not, but just to be who we are and to feel confident in that. But to truly be ourselves, we must first answer the question, Who am I? What's true about me? What's essential to my identity and my personality? And then once we have a sense of what that is, then our words and actions can reflect it. And typically someone who has a strong sense of their own identity and who acts out of that and speaks out of that, we would call them confident or secure or authentic. And so I think being ourselves is a good thing to strive for if, we answer that question correctly. Who are we? Well, I want you to stretch your memory way back, past January, past the holidays, all the way back to before Thanksgiving. Can you remember back that far? We were in the book of Ephesians. Past fall, we walked through chapters 1 through 3. And this morning, we're going to come back to the letter and we're going to begin working our way through the second half of the letter. And if you've read Ephesians, you'll know that there's this distinct shift from chapters 1 to 3 to chapters 4 through 6. In the first three chapters, Paul tells us what Christ has done in us and for us. In the second three chapters, he tells us how we are to respond. Some have described this transition as from theology to ethics, or from doctrine to duty, or from what God did to what we are to do. And I think those are helpful categories to think about the two parts of Ephesians, Um, but we shouldn't draw the line too clearly, because in the ethical teaching of the second half, there's still a lot of theology, and in the theology in the first half, there's still a lot of implied ethics, but nonetheless, there is this shift happening in the letter, and Paul signals this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, with these words I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To put it in my own language, I want to suggest that Paul is essentially saying, Be yourself. Be yourself. Chapters 1 through 3 is describing this calling to a new identity in Christ. And over and over in those chapters of the first half, Paul is telling us what's now true about us as a result of what God has done in Christ. So this isn't a specific calling, like calling to be a doctor or a teacher or a pastor. It's the calling that every Christian receives, the calling of the gospel itself, a calling to step in, to this new identity provided by Jesus and in Jesus. So that's all chapters 1 through 3. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I want you to walk worthy of this calling. I want you to think and act and speak according to your new identity. And then in the second half, chapters 4 through 6, Paul will show us what it looks like to be ourselves, to act and to think according to our identity in Christ. And he'll say it in all these different ways. It's going to get real practical in some of the teaching. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because that's who you are in Christ. Husbands, love your wives self-sacrificially. Why? Because that's what it means to be yourself. Children, obey your parents. Why? Because that's the you that's truly yourself. He'll also say some things on the negative side. He'll say, don't nurture sinful anger in your heart. Don't slander others or tear people down with your words. Don't engage in sexually immoral behavior. Why? Because that's not you. You see, if Paul had done the Snickers commercial, he'd say, you're not you when you sin.'" That's not who you are. That's not who Christ has created you to be. And so if our opinion of ourselves, if who we think we are, is just these miserable, worthless sinners who can't do anything but sin, then we have the wrong view of ourselves. We haven't understood the fullness of the gospel yet. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. Yes, we needed forgiveness. Yes, we were miserable sinners. But then he came to give us a new identity, and through the Holy Spirit to give us the power to be ourselves, to live out of this new identity. And so, so often, not just in Ephesians, but in other letters, Paul will speak against sin and he'll speak towards righteousness, but the way he does that is always saying, that's not you anymore, so live according to who you are. Put on these clothes of righteousness. Dress yourself in this new way. So beginning next week, we're going to start making our way through chapters 4 through 6, looking at what it means to walk worthy, to live consistently with who we are. And interestingly enough, one of the first things Paul begins with is unity. Eagerly pursuing and protecting unity is acting like ourselves. But this morning, to get us back into Ephesians, I want to consider our calling to this new identity in Christ, chapters 1 through 3 who we are because of the gospel. Now, a lot of this will be familiar, but it's good to bring it to our attention again because a strong sense of who we are in Christ is necessary for us to engage in chapters 4 through 6, to understand what it means to walk worthy or else we'll just make it in to some type of legalism, just something that we put on the surface rather than something coming out of who we are. Are we tracking? Okay, some nods. So this is sort of a review, going back over the first three chapters. One of the first things that Paul says after his little introduction in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he comes to verse 3 and he goes off in this wonderfully long description of our blessings in Christ. And he begins that by saying, "...in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places." In Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's his summary statement of our true identity. We are blessed. We are blessed in Christ, meaning based in the life he lived, based on his relationship with the Father, not on what we have done. And we are blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. Now, if you remember way back to September, we looked at the heavenly places, trying to understand how that was an interpretive key for the whole letter of Ephesians. Heavenly places is not just heaven in Ephesians. It's not just, oh, the place where God dwells. It includes that, but it's more than that. I think the best way to describe the heavenly places is the invisible dimension of reality. The invisible dimension of reality. You can't see it but it's real. It's actually more real than what we can see and touch. Paul is going to ground our identity not in the reality that we can see, this world, but in the reality that we cannot see, the heavenly places. And that is hugely important for us to understand. Because what it means is that our true identity in Christ is sometimes hard to see. And if we spend our time just looking around at the the world and the kind of things that happen to us and how much money we have and how successful we've been in this or whatever, how our children are doing, then we're going to have the wrong sense of our identity. We need a different set of glasses to understand who we are. We need to come and to access this truth about us through faith, through believing what God says about us in his word, accepting that as the final word on our identity, even if we don't feel like it's true, even if it doesn't quite match up with the circumstances of our lives. So this invisible dimension of reality is the more enduring one. That's where we want to live from. That's where we're the most fully ourselves. In Colossians, uh, Paul talks about how one day Christ will be revealed and we will be revealed with him because that whole... uh, Experience that whole reality will finally one day be visible and our truest selves will come out. So that's where Paul is going to take us in Ephesians. Now there are a lot of parts of our calling in chapters 1 through 3. I've tried to boil it down to five things that are true about you and true about me in Christ in the heavenly places. So first, You are chosen. You are chosen. It's one of the first blessings that Paul puts out there. I think that's because it's the most foundational. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. As human beings, one of the most crucial part of our identities being formed are these experiences of being loved, desired, and chosen by our parents from a very early age. When a human being does not have that, it wreaks havoc on one's sense of identity. So who are we? We are people who are desired by God from the foundation of the world. Can you let that sink in? You're desired by God from the foundation of the world. He wants you. He chose you. And what is more, because He is God and He is sovereign, nothing can stop Him from bringing us into His family, from getting the object of His desire. That's what predestination is all about. We reduce predestination and election, and we make it into this cold, calculating doctrine. It's got some wonderful doctrinal points to it, but at its core, it's a word charged with love, with relationship, with relentless pursuit of a father who loves us. It's him saying, I desire you, I choose you, and nothing will stop me from making you my son or daughter. A little later in chapter 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, which he does in his letter. And one of his petitions is surprising. He prays that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we hear that word inheritance, and if we've been reading along at Ephesians, we jump back uh, to chapter 1 earlier, and we say, oh, great, that's our inheritance, right? Paul has talked about that. We have this wonderful inheritance. But that's not actually what he says. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance, meaning God's inheritance. Paul is praying that the Ephesians know how amazing, wonderful this God's inheritance is. Now, that's a little funny. God has an inheritance? Well, God owns everything. Why would he have an inheritance? What would that be? And what we come to discover is we are his inheritance. We are what he looks forward to enjoying forever. That's how much... He treasures us. You see, friends, once we understand how loved we are, ethics really aren't that big a deal. Behaving rightly flows from the heart that knows it's chosen and that it's loved. It's when we reverse this. It's when we try to behave rightly in order to earn God's love that we end up with this crippling legalism. So who are we, friends? We're chosen by God. We're loved by God. That's the foundation of our identity. Do you accept that for yourself? Do you believe that at a heart level? Because if you don't, if there's something that's blocking that, you need to deal with that in prayer and by the Spirit because it all starts from there. The second thing that's true about you you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You see, there was this problem of drawing near to God, of becoming his sons and daughters, of receiving his love and coming fully alive in it. There was this blockage. It was called sin. Paul describes it um, quite vividly in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's not just that, oh, we had made a couple of wrong decisions or we'd broken a few rules. We were dead spiritually dead already, and headed for certain physical death. So while God loved us, we could not receive or enjoy that love. It could not birth a new identity in us because sin was in the way. We were slaves to it. We were in rebellion, and that would have been our fate forever. But God, those great gospel words, but God stepped in and he did something. He acted sovereignly. He changed the direction of our tragic stories and gave us a story of triumph in his Son. What did he do? Quite simply, he forgave us. He forgave us and then he made us alive in Christ even when we were dead, and he did that through the cross of Jesus. That's why the cross stands at the center as a symbol of Christianity, because it's where the perfect man, the spotless lamb... Took on himself the sin of the world in order to forgive it. And so Paul will list among those blessings in chapter one that in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we were dead, now we're alive. We were separated by sin, now we're forgiven. God dealt with the blockage through the cross. Remember how I said he would stop at nothing to bring us home? Well, that included the death of his only beloved son. The father gave up Jesus that he might bring us home. And Jesus wasn't some uh, victim of that. Jesus, from all eternity, loved us with the same love that the father did, and he willingly, gladly laid down his life as part of this plan. So, you've heard that before. That's that's the essence of the Christian gospel, or at least that's the, the kernel at the core of it. Paul has a word to describe it grace. Grace. It's a gift. It's not deserved. We didn't earn it. It wasn't by works, it wasn't by trying hard. It was by grace received through faith. That's who we are. This is our identity. We are people who are forgiven, who are brought from death to life, who are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as a gift, 100% undeserved. This has an impact on how we think, act, and speak. A forgiven person forgives, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's who we are. A person who has received mercy is merciful. A person who understands their own brokenness and need for grace has compassion on others. That's the posture of a Christian towards other people. That's who we are. The third truth about your identity. You are enlightened. You are enlightened. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is a mouthful, but a lot of scholars see that as like the thesis statement of Ephesians, the the main teaching that brings it all together. That in Christ, God is bringing all things in every dimension of reality, heaven and earth, together in Christ. He's summing up everything in Christ, if you like that language. Or another imagery, in his beloved son, God is putting the head back on the world again so that it can function rightly. We've been running around as a world with like a chicken with her head cut off. God's fixing that. He's putting the head, Jesus, back on the world that shalom, peace, goodness, wholeness might flourish. Now, our reconciliation to God is part of that, but it involves a lot more than just our personal salvation. What this shows us is that history itself has a goal. All of this is moving towards the great climax of all things being summed up in Christ. Jesus is the key to make sense of history. A lot of people today, especially in our postmodern world where we're post-believing in any sort of big story, any sort of big truth that would unify and make sense of our lives or the world, we're, we're beyond that. That's, that's what philosophers call the age we're living in. And so a lot of people today say, there is no point to my life There is no point to history, so let me just take my little version of truth, whatever makes me happy, whatever makes sense of the world for me, and I'll cling to that. Paul says, no. No, not only your life, but all of the history of the world is pointing to Jesus, and God is summing up all things in him. As those who have been chosen and forgiven and brought into the family of God, He has enlightened us to this great plan. We are no longer the people to say, oh, we just have to cling to our wreckage and just hold on to my my little life. He says, no, there's this great plan of cosmic reconciliation in Christ. And you know it. You know that it's about Him. But there's more. You have a part to play in it. You have a role in working out this plan. A little later, Ephesians 2, verse 10 Paul says, For we are his workmanship, literally, work of art. We are his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our good works, our ethical behavior, it's not earning God's favor. We already saw that. But our good works are also not just random acts of kindness. They might seem random, disconnected to us, but for Jesus, in the invisible realm, they're part of this plan. He says they're prepared in advance. So when you love your neighbor, when you tutor a child, when you feed the poor, when you're faithful in your marriage, you are playing a part of this cosmic plan of all things being brought together under the headship of Christ. Because any time we walk in good works, we are demonstrating to the world out there what it means to have Christ as our king. We live in ways that say this is what it looks like to be united to Christ. So we get to see the plan. We get to participate in it. It brings whole new meaning to our simple acts of obedience to these acts of love. All of a sudden, taking out the trash doesn't seem like some pointless task, but you're part of the great cosmic reconciliation plan in some way. It's an incredibly high calling. It gives meaning and purpose to the most everyday things. It's part of who we are. The fourth truth about your identity in Christ, you're included you're included. Beginning in the second half of chapter 2, Paul will talk about the corporate nature of salvation. In the first half of chapter 2, he's talked about more of the the individual. We were dead in Christ. God made us alive. It's by grace. But then he goes on, and and he's still talking about the gospel, and actually follows the same structure. He says, this is where you were. This is what God did. This is what you have now. He's addressing this long-standing division between Jews and Gentiles that now, in the great plan of God, has been removed. There was this dividing wall of hostility between those two groups that has been abolished by the cross. He says that in Christ, God took these two groups and he actually made a new thing, a new humanity, one new man out of the two. Well, the inclusion of Gentiles into God's plan of salvation is a major sign. It's probably the clue that tipped Paul off to what he described in chapter 1, verse 10, uniting all things in Christ. Because for Paul, if Jews and Gentiles can come together, something nobody really saw coming, there's a massive paradigm shift happening. And so that's a major theme of Ephesians. But for us, it has something important to say. And speaking to Gentiles, and I assume most of us in this room are Gentiles. Maybe some of us have a Jewish background, but most of us are Gentiles. Paul says to us, you were once far off. You were alienated from God. But, there's the word again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there was a time when we were not included in God's salvation. But now in Jesus, we are now included. We take that for granted, don't we? We just kind of assume that, well, we're part of the plan. God saved us. But for Paul, this was a revelation. And he goes on to describe what God is doing with all of this. And he says that together with the Jews, this new humanity, we are being made into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, major shift for Paul. He was a dedicated Jew. The the dwelling place of God on earth was the temple. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's seeing the people of God, this newly created thing, and they're the dwelling place of God on earth. That's where God is at work. In Christ, something has fundamentally changed. A lot of times we focus solely on our personal salvation, but we also need to understand and embrace this corporate aspect of our salvation we are saved into god's people we're included in something larger than ourselves and together with god's people we have this high calling of being a dwelling place for god by his spirit to be ourselves therefore is to understand this part of our identity we are not solo christians it's not just about you and jesus or even your family unit and Jesus. You cannot understand your true identity apart from the group. Let me say that again. You cannot really understand who you are apart from God's people, the group, because we have this corporately derived identity in Christ. Now, this is such an affront to an American way of thinking because we think about our um, individual achievements that make us great. But the biblical way of thinking is different. You're included in something wonderful. It's larger than yourself. And therefore, acting like yourself will reflect this. That's why the first thing Paul's going to talk about after he introduces this idea is unity. He says, what does it look like to pursue and protect unity within God's people? And he'll expand on that idea later in chapter 4 and talk about the functioning of a body and how we're all playing a part in building up the body. We're not just consumed in our own little busy lives and our own little stories through God's people. We're participating in the great plan and we get to work out our parts in that as part of the church. And so being involved in church, investing in the lives of others, building up other people. It's not something we do because we feel guilty. It's not something we do because we live in Charlotte and that's sort of almost a social norm. Well, I got a church. It's something we do because it's who we are. It's our identity. We're included in the people of God. So let's be ourselves. Fifth truth about us from Ephesians 1 through 3. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it To the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit has a lot of roles in the life of a believer, and and one of them is a very present role. Right now, it is the power of the Spirit in us that enables us to walk worthy of the calling. He enables us to live out our identity and to put to death the sinful desires of the flesh. That's not part of who we are anymore. Quite simply, He is the one who helps us be ourselves. But in these verses, Paul is talking about how being sealed with the Holy Spirit guarantees our future. He calls our future our inheritance. As chosen, beloved children of God, we have this massive inheritance coming our way. It is an inheritance of glory and beauty, an inheritance of resurrection and new creation. It is an inheritance of full fellowship with the triune God enjoyed eternally the seal of the holy spirit which means his presence in our lives is a guarantee of the good future that awaits us one of my favorite descriptions of this future is found in ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 paul says that god saved us so that in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He can't get enough good words in there. But the word that catches my heart is kindness. Our inheritance is one of everlasting kindness. Of the Father spending eternity showering us with these different working out, these different manifestations of how good he is. I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, what it's going to feel like, but I imagine these waves of God's beauty and love just rolling over us, surprising us, that there's this dynamic part of heaven that there's always more to see, because God has always more kindness, always more kindness that He wants to give us. That's our future. That's what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit awaiting this great inheritance. Because we have that kind of future that enables us to live a very different kind of life in this world. Most people in the world, whether or not they admit it, are living for this life only. But our ethics are derived from the future, from a future that is good, from a future that is secure. And so we can give our lives away. And we can give our money away. And we can give our power away. Paul's going to spend a whole section on talking about submission. Submit to one another. Give your power away. We can embrace suffering in a way that people cannot if they only know the treasures of this life. We can lay down our lives for Christ and his kingdom, not just as something we do, but because it's who we are. It's just being ourselves. So, friends, in order to be ourselves in this world, We need to know who we are. And Paul has shown us this. In Christ, he has called us to a new identity where we are chosen, we are forgiven, we are enlightened, we are included, and we are sealed. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at a lot of ethical teaching. It's going to be practical. I think it's going to be helpful. It's going to be hard to do fitting that we're going to do part of this in Lent. I mean, it's hard to work some of these things out. There's going to be a lot of do this and don't do this. But it's not legalism. Don't turn it into legalism. It is simply walking worthy of the calling in the most basic way. It is just being ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give a fresh vision and realization to every heart in this room of who they are in Christ and in the heavenly realms. Lord, that you might feed that vision, that you might feed our hearts, that in the weeks to come, we might have a renewed sense of our calling to you. And that we might live in power in a way that is consistent with this new identity. Where we can't just put this on on the surface level. We need you to change us from the inside out. To help us realize that we are these new creations in Christ. So I pray for your power and your help for me and for my brothers and sisters. And we pray it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.